Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. All right, you ready for the message? All right, turn your Bibles to uh, Matthew 6. I got a lot of content. I went over last service. I'm going to do a better job this one. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go now. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Man, worry is just, it's, I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't worry just a little bit. And what Jesus is doing in this, uh, in this little pocket is life is going to have stresses. It's going to have weights. And he's trying to share, us, share with us a secret on how we can put things in the right order of things. Everybody needs a good slogan. Everybody needs something that just, you know, um, uh, helps them get up in the morning. Uh, even like when uh, countries are going through a hard time, they create slogans. Remember World War II, Queen Elizabeth's slogan, keep calm and job well done. That was a good job, Rach. My wife loves the crown. Anybody love the crown? <laughs> crown fans out there? Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Never seen it, but uh, my dad's born in England. That's my, uh, my, that's my, that's my, uh, that's my English uh, um, thing. Okay, anyways. Uh, so keep calm, carry on. Another one that was a big slogan back in the day was carpe diem, seize the day, you know. Um, if you were a Raiders fan, just win, baby. That was the slogan. Now, our generation, what they built up for the slogan was YOLO. Talk to me. Pray for us. It's the best we could come up with. You only live once. Really? Really? If I, if I see that on anybody's mug, I'm throwing it on the ground, okay? All right? I'm down with the keep calm, carry on, but not a YOLO. You know, okay. So anyways, so Jesus here is showing us that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of good days and bad days, he's going to give us a verse as an anchor. Not only a verse, but a compass on where we're supposed to point our life. So I say, hey, don't worry about life what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, or what you'll wear. Now, today, he'll be saying, don't worry about the stock market. Don't worry about the political climate right now. Don't worry about the balloons, uh, you know, flying over America, <laughs> whatever that is. You know, he, he might throw that in today, okay? Um, we got fighter jets to shoot him down, but anyways. Um, he said, don't worry about that. He says, uh, and let's go down to verse 20. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Verse 31. So do not worry. Keep on going. Do not worry. Do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? He's like, don't say that. Uh, or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For pagans run after these things. He's given a picture. He's saying, people who don't know the Lord chase after security and money, security and promotion. They chase after a person. They're chasing after something that can be their solid place. And you're not going to find it. We don't chase that way. He goes, here's the slogan. You ready? Um, and your heavenly father knows all you need him. Here it is. But seek first. Everybody say First his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. All those things that you're holding in your hand, you know, the things that you're stressed out about, kids, political climate, whatever it is, career, he's saying, hey, first put that down, lift your hands up, praise me, and I'll take care of the rest. And the title of my message today is what Jesus wants, he wants to be first. And as your pastor, this is one of those foundational ones. If you get this one, woo, there's a lot of things going to change your life and it's going to change for the better. Bow your heads, I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you're doing at Mission Church. And God, I pray that as we come into this Sunday, may we not have a routine kind of expectation. Just another Sunday, another message. But God, may we come with great faith that you're going to do a great work in us. That you're going to set us free. God, great promises ahead. God, great victories ahead. So God, we just come to the one that makes a way when there is no way. God, may my words fall to the floor and your words soar. Oh, we want to hear from you today. And everybody said? 
Three points in this simple message today. Uh, why it's beneficial and why it's important for God to be first. Three of them. Um, why should God be first? It's practical. We're going to talk about why it's practical. Second one, it's crucial. It's a life or death thing. I'm going to, I'm going to say it that heavy. And the last one, it's beneficial. You're going to have a blessed life when you put God first. First one, it's practical. Turn your Bibles to Romans 1. Here we go. I've been in this verse a lot lately. And so I've read it like three times in the last six weeks. Uh, I think God wants us to know. Here we go. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks as began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. When you trade God, when you take what should be first and you make it fourth, and you take fourth and make it first, your life's going to get really confusing. It's going to get really hard. When first things first, take a back seat. When Jesus goes down to five and career goes to one, it says you start to get confused, even wonder what's important in your life. Practically, it's just a foolish thing it's saying. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools, and instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worship idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Stop. Here's a quote for you. Ready? When God is not first, this verse shows us chaos is inevitable and order is impossible. The things that you want in your life, the joy, the peace, the fulfillment, you're not going to have it. When career is first, chaos is inevitable, order is impossible. When your kids are first, when a hobby is first, if you're first, Things are not going to fall into place. It is a biblical principle. Let me read you Exodus 20. Um, Ron Mel writes a, writes a great book on the Ten Commandments. He called them the Tender Commandments. Because you read the Ten Commandments, you're like, oh, this is a bunch of rules. Read each one. They're all protecting. You know, they're, they're, they, they're guarding your soul. Like, even like the Sabbath. Like, he's telling you the Sabbath because he wants you to rest. He wants to take care of your soul. Do you know dirt needs rest? Do you know bowling pins need rest? Like, like that, that's, that's weird, yes? Well, guess what? You need rest. And so the Ten Commandments, like all of them are to protect your soul. And so the first one is this one that if you don't get this one, you don't get the next nine. If you don't get this one first, you're going to miss it. Then God gave all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued from Egypt the place of slavery. You must have no any other God but me. He's like, not, this, this text is doing a couple things. One is he's showing you the order. No other God but me. I'm first. But also it's saying, and it's telling on you that you do have other gods. It's saying, hey, you know those other lowercase gods in your life, those lowercase idols? idols? You can't have them in your life anymore. They're going to steal from you. I, um, I love what it says in Jeremiah 11. It says that you have as many idols as you do towns. You have as many altars built to these idols as you do streets. And what, what, what the text is showing is that when you do get saved, you bring idols in. You bring lowercase gods, lowercase things that are really important. Let's keep reading it. You must not take, uh, make for yourself an idol of any kind, an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth in the sea. You must bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any of the gods. That's a relational statement right there. I um, uh, want to share a little uh, case study thing I found. I thought it was kind of fascinating. Uh, there's this doctor. You won't know his name. His name's Meyer Friedman. Uh, maybe you know him if you're a huge book reader, but he's a cardiologist. He came up with two terms that are very famous now uh, because he was studying why people who are younger and healthier were having heart attacks. And so he uh, discovered and coined this phrase called a type A person, a person who's always rushing, if you could put it that way. Another thing he coined was this term called hurry sickness. And hurry sickness basically is your heart's racing at a higher rate than it should in places when it shouldn't. Um, you're always stressed out. You're on to the next thing. Now, uh, he actually had a test if you suffered from hurry sickness. And I want to show you again, I just want to make a statement. Chaos is inevitable and order is impossible. I'm going to show you in a case study that when God is not first, this is what happens to your soul and to your life. So here's a test. Maybe you have uh, one of these three. I um, am going to start relaxing more in my life because I 
tested positive on all three of these, okay? And I was like, ooh. I was like, I gotta start, I gotta change some things in my life. Okay, so um, first one is this. He would ask these questions if you had hurry sickness. First one is, um, he would ask people, if you are stopping at a light, uh, you may have hurry sickness if there's three cars on one side and one car in the right lane and you switch your car to be the second car because you just got to be one car ahead at the light. Like, like, one, two, three, four, one, two. Okay, I got to switch over. Okay, okay. <sighs> we're doing it. Okay, everybody's good. We're good. You're good. I'm good. Okay, we're good. Okay, you know. You know. He, goes, he goes, so, so, you, so you drive that way, okay, um, which I do that, okay? And he goes, he goes, then the other rule is if there's the same amount of cars, three cars and three cars, then you're like, okay, hold on a second. Uh, let me diagnose. What are the faster cars? Uh, those are big trucks. Uh, that's, a, that's a Corvette. Uh, I'm not getting left lane, big trucks. No, no, no. Uh, fast cars, yes, yes, yes. And you get in the right lane, okay? And so you, so you get in the right lane, okay? okay? If you do that, you might have hurried sickness, okay? I do that. When Shane, was, when Shane drives, this guy is just cool as the other side of the pillow. And so Shane drives like this. And then I'm in the passenger seat. I'm like, Shane, change lanes. Shane, right side. Shane, left side. I mean, ask Shane, me and him driving. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to be Shane. Shane, Shane got that secret sauce. Whatever going on in his soul, I want it. You know, he got it. So, so, so that, that's one of the questions uh, they would ask if you, um, uh, if you have hurry sickness. Second one is, um, if you're at the, uh, 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 Whole Foods or Safeway, you do the same thing when you stand in line, you're looking for the, the shorter line, but then what you do also there is if you are the third person in line and somebody else is in the third person line and you could have picked that one, you watch that person like you're racing them. And uh, <laughs> is that person going to get out of line before me? I do that. I do, this is what I do. And so you get in line and you watch them like they get out of the store first. Like, no, I picked the wrong line. You know, <laughs> the person in front of me can't find their wallet, you know, um, and so you, you, you're tied, but it's like a race, okay? That's another one that he would ask you if you suffer from hurried sickness. And the uh, self-checkout, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Touche. Okay, uh, and then third one. Uh, this was before Apple Maps. You would use MapQuest, but uh, on Apple Maps, you see the ETA for Apple Maps, but your brain does not read ETA. It reads time to beat. And so it's like ETA, 9 a.m. You're like, I'm getting there at 8.55. Vin Diesel, I live my life a quarter mile at a time, you know? Um, if you said yes to all three, you need some help. I need some help. I need some help. And, and, and if I could just really um, break this down, I um, came across these two books as I was studying um, that were recommended. I didn't read either of them, but um, uh, I would recommend you read them. One is, uh, <laughs> I'm going to read them eventually, okay? I'm saying I didn't read them yet. Uh, Robert Morris, Take the Day Off. Uh, and then uh, uh, John Mark Comer, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, and one of the stories in one of those books that uh, has been in another book is about this gentleman in Japan. Uh, they called him just a, a generic name, Mr. Osaka. We can call him Mr. A, Mr. Osaka. And he worked 110 hours a week. That would be 16-hour days, uh, seven days a week, eight hours of rest. That's it. That's 110 hours. Um, and they found him in his cubicle. Uh, di- he died of a heart attack at age 34. And... You, you look at this, and you're like, is that, a, just a, is that a one-off? And the reality is, is that this is happening more and more in our culture because when you get God out of place, chaos is inevitable and order is impossible. Health is impossible. And so uh, Japan actually had to create a word for this, uh, working yourself to death, and they title it Kiroshi. I think I'm here. So Japan calls it Kiroshi. Uh, China calls it something else. I can't repeat that. I don't know how to say that. Forgive me. South Korea calls it Gawarsa. Gawarsa. Um, I was going to try the Chinese one, but I know I'd butcher it, but I think I did pretty good on the first and uh, last one. So the last 30 years, uh, maybe I didn't, whatever, okay. Um, <laughs> the last 30 years, nations are creating new words 
to put a title to something that is happening in our soul. Now, they even have a definition of these three words, and they mean this. All three words would be described this, insane hours. I just don't have enough time. I, don't have, I want to go to church on Sunday. I just don't have enough time. I want to read my Bible. I just don't have enough time. I want, I want to do this, but I just don't have enough time. Like, just insane hours. You have, you have no bandwidth. Next one is intense pressure. Everything's so important. I've got to score a bucket in a basketball game today. I've got to be at the thing at this time. I've got to do this at work or else. I've got to be here or else. There's this intense pressure. And the third one is little to no rest. Let me, let me just unpack this real quick. When the most important thing in your life, Jesus, gets displaced, you get a bunch of other gods in those places, and you give them the same affection, but they do not steward your soul well. They destroy your soul. So when you replace the important thing with a bunch of things, those things become crushing. Like, let's be honest. Why am I so stressed out when I'm driving? Where am I going? I'm like driving to work. I can be two minutes late. I don't know why I need to be there one minute early. Like, the only time you should ever be driving that way is if you're, like, you're having a baby birth or you got courtside seats at the Warriors and you don't want to be late for the game. <laughs> I was thinking in my head, like, what would I, what, what should I, like, what warrant that kind of driving? What, what has happened to our soul to where we feel like, I've got to be there. I've got to do this. I've got to be this. Let me, let me read you a, a verse in Luke 10. And I think Jesus shows us uh, what happens. Martha, Martha. Now, if you don't know this story, Martha is hosting a dinner party. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha is busy. She doesn't have enough time. She's under intense pressure. She is suffering from Kuroshi at this moment, okay? And this is what Jesus says to her. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Everybody say one. one. This, if you can get this one thing today, as your pastor to you, if you can get this one thing that, that Jesus should be the one that you orbit your life around, that he should be first, here's what happens. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is what I wrote down in a little Todd Johnson quote. You can have it, you can toss it, whatever. If you lose the one thing, you will be upset and worried about many things. If you, if you take the one thing that your life should be orbited around, you'll be upset about many, many things. If I took five of your friends, the people close to you, the top five people close to you, and said, what are they all about? Like, what, what, are, they, what are they all about? What's, what, what's the most important thing to them? Now, I don't want you to answer that for me. I'd want to ask people, because you may not have a slogan, but seek first the kingdom of God, but you have a life that screams what's first to you. They would say, oh, man, he's got this hobby. He loves it. It's all about it. It's called golf. He hit one good shot, and he literally raised his hand and said, I will say yes to this for the rest of my life. Like, like no, you know, come back from golf. And maybe it's career. Maybe it's a person. Maybe a kid. You've heard me say this, that, that an idol is a good thing that would make an ultimate thing. In other ways, it's making a good thing a God thing. And if you, if you know anything about what, what, what God uh, is, deserves and what we're built for is we're built to worship God. And so um, if you know the Greek word of worship and the Hebrew worship, there's actually a, one of the, the, the pictures and the word uses is prostrate, but it doesn't mean to lay on the ground. It means to actually prostrate your body onto something for it to hold your weight. So if you take your life and you put the wrong God and you put the, the weight of your life on it, you're going to crush it and it will crush you. And so what do you do if you have an idol that is first in your life right now? I'm going to give you some handles on how you can take whatever is one right now and put it back in the right spot and put God in the first spot. Are you ready? Here they are. There's three things you need to do when you have an idol in your life that when you've lost the one thing, how do you get it back? First thing you need to do is you need to name the idol. You need to name it. And what I mean by that is uh, Rachel and I were uh, 
in Vegas a couple weeks ago with my dad, and we're at this restaurant, they're playing older music, and I heard this song in the background, and I thought it was just such a mean, rude song. And it, it, it said this, it says, you're nobody till somebody loves you. And I was like, that's really mean. That's a terrible song. Like, I, nobody? And then I started preparing this message, and I started thinking to myself, I was like, that was my theme song. That was my idol. When I was in my 20s, I, I, I literally just thought, once I'm married, I'll have the thing that I've desired most. I'm nobody till I find my spouse. And I remember when I was on that journey, it just was destroying and stealing things, just sucking me dry, if you will, just destroying my soul. And I remember I had to name it for what it was. I am um, a person who came from a broken family that wasn't loved very well, so I'm trying to have a person fix everything that happened in my childhood. Idol created, idol worshipped, idol destroying. So I had to name it. I was dating a girl at the time, and it was really unhealthy because I made her my idol, and I put the weight of my life of, uh, it has to be perfect, and she has to satisfy my soul. And it was just this back and forth, terrible, unhealthy relationship. We broke up. Um, I started dating Rachel, kind of repeated the rhythm a little bit for the first five months. We broke up after five months, Rachel and I did. And then uh, for nine months, we were, uh, uh, we were apart. And during that nine-month time, I remember naming that idol in my heart. And I remember just realizing, like, oh, Lord, like, I feel like you aren't enough. I still need this. And I remember saying at my house, it was my little apartment in Burbank, California, just saying, Lord, if I'll never get married, you're more than enough. And I'm 27 at the time. I was like, God, if you never have me with anybody, like, you're 27, man, relax. You know what I'm saying? I was like, this is all I have, you know? And I'm like having one of those prayer moments with the Lord. And I remember like going to bed that night and, um, uh, laying down and put on friends. I'd fall asleep to friends. Come on now, shout out to one of the greatest shows ever. Um, when you're single and you're an extrovert, you need to have friends at your house, okay? So it'd be me and my six friends, okay? So anyways, um, that's not weird. Uh, so uh, I put on friends and I, um, uh, I just remember this like wave of contentment coming over my life that I never had before in my life. And then I remember actually Rachel and I getting back together and it just being so healthy, me not putting this weight on her to be something to me she's not supposed to be because she's never supposed to be first. God first, marriage second, and then ministry and then everything else. And if your life is not ordered correctly, you will lean on the wrong thing and you will keep on falling and wondering why you're so damaged is because God is not first yet. Can I get amen for that? So you need to name the idol. After you name it, you need to unmask it. I kind of shared that a little bit with how I did it, but you need to name what is the thing that you have made a God thing in your life. You need to unmask what it's doing to you. You need, to tell, you need to give yourself, it's almost like a diagnosis. I gave myself, is this really good for my soul? I, why, I, it's almost like I had like this, like this soul tie kind of thing. Like, I, I, I want this, but, but every time I want it, it just brings turmoil and chaos and, and depression and stress in my life. It just, it, it owns me. I don't drive to work happy. I drive to work, what if I lose this? If I lose this, I've lost everything. Well, it has became a, a ruler of me and not a thing that sets free. Last time I checked, God said his Bible and his Bible, that his word and his calling for my life, his burden is light, but this is not light. Maybe this isn't God because this is bondage and not freedom. You got to start unmasking things. And once you name it and once you unmask it, then you got to replace it. God, but first, for the rest of my days, I will seek his, the king and his kingdom. And Psalm 37, 4 tells me this, and this is a life verse for me. Uh, it's one of my favorite ones in all the Bible. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You want to find, let me put it this way, what do you want out of this year? Like, what do you really want out of this year? 
You, you want fulfillment. You want restoration. The things your heart really desires. Find somebody with a really, really rich life. And I'm not talking about bank account. I'm talking about the things that really like, wow, their life is just full. Find out what it is, because that's what happened to me. I found people with great lives, and I found out the reason why. They had great marriages, a great, um, a great career, uh, just a great perspective on life, is because their life orbited around Jesus and not a thing. I've been around rich people, famous people in L.A., and they are miserable as all get out because they orbit around themselves or orbit around some idol of trying to be perfect or a performance thing. Trust me. Get rid of the theme song. You're nobody till you get a promotion. Get rid of it. Get rid of all those ones and replace it with God. Amen? Amen. All right, so there's the practical. Second point, it's critical. It's critical. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 6. A final word, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that uh, you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers, authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Stop. Can I just tell you real quick? Our generation it does not suffer from being too spiritual. That's not like our problem. You know, like, like everything's spiritual. Like I don't hear that from people, okay? I don't see that on Instagram. I don't see that in the Twitter feed. Like, like we don't suffer from like, hey, like we should be a little bit more practical this day. No, no, we're extremely practical and we have lost the spiritual. And what Paul is saying to the church, hey, here's your calling, here's your conduct. If you want to navigate in life, let me show you something real quick. He goes, let me show you what the spiritual realm looks like a little bit. It is principalities. What does that say? It, it literally means a demonic prince of a region that would rule in a region that would try to create a demonic kingdom in the Bay Area instead of God's kingdom and try to still kill and destroy everything that you care about. And he's saying the gates of hell are literally trying to not only come into the Bay Area, not only come to your front yard, but come into your house, come into your quiet place. Like the gates of hell are trying to move forward and surround you and then own your life. He's saying, hey, this is what's gonna happen. But be strong in prayer. Be strong in his power. And then he goes on to give these spiritual weapons. These weapons of, you know, the shoes uh, of peace, the, 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 the breastplate of righteousness, the, the shield of faith. Of course, the sword, the, the belt of truth, uh, the helmet of salvation. He shares all these spiritual uh, solutions. And it's interesting to me, if I could just submit this to you, the Bay Area is not where it's at because we have not practically taken all the right steps. It's not, if we just get these two policies to pass, everything's fixed. The Bay Area has problems because there are spiritual problems and the church needs to identify it and bring spiritual solutions. The things that you have in your life are not just practical problems. I would submit to you, they are actually more supernatural problems and they need supernatural solutions. And so Ephesians 6, Paul is saying, here's the problems, they're spiritual. Here's the solutions, they're spiritual. Let me share you a story of what, what, what that would look like. Um, Charles Finney is this revivalist that I love. In the 1830s, God used him in a mighty way. And in New York City, there was this one revival where there were so many salvations in New York City that suburb uh, churches from around New York City sent their pastors because there wasn't enough pastors for how many people got saved. Now, it'd be like if the Bay Area, the 10 million people in the Bay Area, there was a revival and Fresno were sending pastors. Modesto was sending pastors. Bakersfield was sending pastors. Uh, um, uh, what's uh, Eureka was sending pastors. Trying to think of another suburb north of us. Uh, Lodi was sending pastors. Like all the suburb towns were sending pastors in the Bay Area because there's so many salvations. Well, after that uh, six-month run where a bunch of salvations, they, they learned how to steward it a little bit better at that moment. Uh, this church in Rochester, New York, that gave their pastor to, the, uh, to help with the revival wrote Charles Finney and said, hey, we lost our pastor for six months to the revival that you are a part of. We feel like you owe us six months of preaching. 
He said yes to coming up to Rochester, New York. People say, don't go to Rochester, New York. It's a small suburb town in New York. You know, he goes, it's not a lot of people, only 100,000 people. We go to cities. That's what we do for a vows. And he just felt compelled by the Lord to go to Rochester, New York. And if you know the story, he goes to Rochester, New York. And the whole city, like 100,000, like, it's like 90-some percent, like, got saved. It's one of the greatest revivals ever per capita. It's amazing. Now, we hear that. I'm like, oh, that's great. Charles Finney out there. He preached, preached uh, 95 times in six months at that, at, that, at that church. And you're like, man, a lot of preaching. It happened. If you read the story of Charles Finney, you buy his autobiography, you'll hear another guy's name. And we're going to call him Brother Nash. His first name is Daniel Nash, but we're going to call him Brother Nash because that's what's on his headstone, Brother Nash. He would not go to places unless Brother Nash felt like they were supposed to go there also. And what Brother Nash would do is that when Charles Finney felt like he was going to go somewhere, he'd tell Brother Nash, and Brother Nash would leave a month ahead of Charles Finney and get intercessors, and they would pray for a month straight before Charles Finney would even show up before he spoke one word. He would prepare the place with a spiritual battle so that when Charles Finney would come preach, people would get saved. I want to be honest with you. I read some of Charles Finney's messages from that six-month revival. They weren't that good. It was like, I mean, like, they weren't like, they were like, ooh, that's profound. Like, it was very simple. It was like, you know, like, the cross, the grave, the blood. The cross, the grave, the blood. And I started thinking to myself, like, my messages are better than this. Where's the good illustration, Charles? Where's the great closing part so people can, you know, take it away and go change their life? Where's it at, Charles? And I started, like, even, like, getting impressed on my own soul. Preaching isn't where the heavy lifting gets done. What are you sending ahead of you? Charles Finney sent prayer for four weeks ahead of him. What are you sending ahead of your career? What are you sending ahead of your marriage? What are you sending ahead of your kids right now? Because Charles Finney understood spiritual problems are going to need a spiritual solution. And then once the Holy Spirit and, and prayer has done all the heavy lifting, I'll come in and say, Jesus, anybody want them? Yep. And it's amazing when you start to bathe things in prayer and you start to pave the way in prayer, watch what happens in your life. Now let's just double down on this thought and uh, take a look at Matthew 17 because if I'm being honest, as a pastor, I know a lot of Christians in the room right now, you're an amazing pop gun prayer warrior. Great at pop gun prayers. And what a pop gun prayer is this is, Lord, bless my day. You just shoot that one little flare in the sky, you're done. You're like, I did it. Heaven, did you see my flare? Bless my day. It's all good. Lord, bless my kids. Another flare. Bless my career. Okay, there we go. You know, bless my health. So you got all these little pop gun flares in the sky. And then you just go to the day and you're good for the rest of the day, you think. A flare does not win war. A flare is not the thing that makes the enemy go, ooh, a flare. A flare just lets the person know that the other person's there. So uh, the enemy's probably seeing you go, bless my day today, Lord. Flare. The enemy's like, well, that's adorable. That don't make the gates of hell move. Now, now, Matthew 17, the disciples, they don't know about bazooka prayer yet. They don't know about the big gun prayer. And so they get sent out to pray for people, and it's not working. The disciples, look right here, Matthew 17. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often in the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Stop. The, the, I, love, I love the dad right here. He's like, hey, disciples, I need to talk to your manager. Because the sign on the door says Jesus heals, and my kid's not being healed. I, I, I love a father. I love a person that says, hey, the word says this. I'm going to go to somebody higher. I need to talk to the big guy. 
Can I just tell you real quick? Disciplined prayers are not going to move heaven. Desperate prayers will move heaven. This is a desperate. I'm not leaving until I see the manager. So the disciples like, yeah. I wonder how many people they failed before that. Like they prayed and they were like, they're not healed. Well, sorry. See you later. (laughs) Well, see you later. This dad's like, no, no. I want to see Jesus. And so uh, they bring him to Jesus and and this is what happened. Then Jesus answered and said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out to him, it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will be moved and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. It's a different type of prayer, he said. He's like, you know your pop gun prayers? No, this is prayer and fasting. This is setting aside. I'm not going to eat right now. I'm going to pray some more right now. I, um, uh, I've shared the story about my grandma. She's my intercessor. She was the one who led me to the Lord at four. Um, I've shared the three things she prayed for. Uh, she, you know, she prayed for my, um, my salvation, the first one, but then she prayed for my ministry. She prayed for um, uh, my wife, and she prayed for my purity. Talk about, <laughs> I don't think that's ever happened. I don't think I've ever had a sneeze during either. I was holding back for a little bit too. Okay, so um, I, uh, I never saw like this picture of my grandma like this till I started studying this message. But I pictured my grandma praying for me my whole life, basically. And my grandma wasn't one of those people. She's like, bless Tyler today. Bless his ministry. Bless his purity. She always be, she was, that, she was always praying. Always had her Bible on that. And to the gates of hell, I just pictured my grandma in like army fatigue with a bazooka shooting him at the gates of hell saying, stay away from my grandson, Tyler. I bless my grandson, Tyler. Protect his purity, God. Prepare his wife, God. Prepare him for his wife. And I, I mean, I'm telling you, these bazooka guns worked. I would go to parties in high school and I would want to be impure and I would want to walk across the line. And for some reason, every single time, God would send his angels and then stop me at a party. Girls would be all, you know, in her school, and I'd want to date a girl, but the Holy Spirit would just go before me and just block them out of the way, saying, no, you don't get a date, Tyler. You don't get a date, Tyler. Uh, there, there was um, my uh, senior year, me and a kid in our school were the only two that were waiting until we were married left, uh, 12 guys. There was 11 girls. Their goal was to take my virginity. That was the goal. Like, there was a group of girls. Now, I'm telling you this because as an 18-year-old, I'm not processing well. My grandma prayed her face off for my life. And the only reason when I was 29 and when I got married to Rachel, and, and I don't even think the reason why I got to marry Rachel is because my grandma was shooting bazookas at the gates of hell, saying, you're not going to steal his promise. You're not going to steal this from him. You're not going to steal his ministry. I had different decisions I could have made in my life career-wise, but I, just, I remember like even sitting there, I was going to either be a college basketball coach, don't judge me, an actor, or a pastor, Okay. <laughs> Those are the three that like, I kind of had on the list. Um, uh, I was going to do like TV sitcom. I was going to go do Friends, you know what I'm saying? Um, and I remember like going to pray, and I just felt compelled. And the Lord let me feel in my heart. I felt like he told me, I'll bless anyone you pick. But I just, I, I heard my grandma praying for me while I was praying, and I just saw the road was already paved. And I just said, God, I choose ministry. I'll never give up. My life is yours. Use my life to build your kingdom. Now, hear this real quick. I believe God's going to awaken in this church intercessors again. God has been putting cities on my heart to pray for more. People. We are not going to move the needle 
by having a great service on Sunday. We will have great services on Sunday because we move the needle through prayer. We are not going to move uh, the Bay Area because you liked Sunday service. We're going to move the Bay Area because we prayed like crazy and people felt compelled to walk through the doors and heard the gospel message and were saved. This is what happens. What moves the needle is prayer. Now, now let me... Um, let me show you this one because I, I feel like I'm stirring some of you up today, and I think that's a great thing. Um, and I want to show you something. There's a couple things we're going to be adding at our church because I feel like if we're going to get another service and we're seeing the growth, I think we need to turn the notch on the spiritual a little bit. So we do first night, the first of every month. Well, we're changing that to revival nights, and we're going first and third of every month. We're going to start doing more worship and prayer at our church. Can I get a man for that? Yes? Yeah. So uh, we're not waiting. So the third Sunday, a uh, third, uh, third Thursday of this February, we're doing our uh, first revival night. Why we call it revival night? Because I don't think you need to be fixed or the Bay Area needs to be fixed. We need to be revived and the Bay Area needs to be revived. Amen? So, so we'll be adding that. Another thing we're adding is we're gonna, we just did 10 days of prayer and fasting. We're going to do that three times a year as a church. Uh, every, every, every few months, we're going to just start out a new season and just 10 days of prayer and fasting. Another thing we're going to do is we're adding an intercession team. Uh, we're going to have people during service in my office praying for the service, praying for me, praying for the worship team. We're going to have people praying throughout the week for people. We're going to have an intercession team. We're building that. And then we also have, you know, every Tuesday, 930 to 1030, our first hour, we give God the best. We give them team prayer. And so we have that. So um, if any of those have your heart leap a little bit, process being a part of it. Does that sound good? Now, I told you, hey, go pray. Take the bazooka out. Go for it. Some of you, here's the deal. Jesus teaches Matthew 17, and he says, you know, prayer and fasting. Some of you have been praying one-day prayers for two-day problems, uh, one-week prayers for two-week problems. And the reality is, is that some of you are going to have to learn how to pray for a month for something, for a year for something, maybe five years for something. And Jesus will t- teach on this. He's teaching about the power of prayer, but he's also teaching about the persistence of prayer. He just says this in Luke 18. He says, one day Jesus told the disciples a story to show them that they should always pray and never give up. Everybody say, never give up. George Mueller was this 30-year-old man who uh, lived a very sinful life. There was a bad decision. He was making it. But he got saved at 30, and he had five friends that were living the same way, and he decided to pray for all five to be saved. And so here are the timelines of the five people and when they got saved. First one got saved right away. Second one was 18 months later. His second friend got saved. Third one was five years of praying. His fourth friend was six years of praying. And his fifth friend was 52 years of praying. 52 years. That guy had a lot of stuff, I'm guessing. Baggage, you know, I mean, you name it. But George Mueller said, I'm committed. I read Luke 18, it says, never give up. Can I share a personal story with you, just to hopefully stir you up? Um, I'm four years old. My grandma leads me to the Lord. I come home. You've heard me preach. My family life wasn't that great. I always thought if my dad got saved, it would change the game. You know, it'd be the best thing. So, so I remember being like a four-year-old, I get saved and my grandma would take me to church uh, sometimes, take me to Christian things. And so I remember asking my dad, you know, as like a little four-year-old, like, uh, grandma's going to take me to church. Dad, will you come? And like with the motive in my heart, even at four years old, I wanted my dad to be saved. And my dad was like, no, <laughs> like Heisman me at four years old. And I was like, dang, cold-blooded. Um, so, um, for years, like as I got older, the more and more, you know, that my home life got harder and harder and my dad became more bitter and bitter. Um, I just keep on inviting him to church and I would, you know, even a little kid would pray for him. And um, as time would go on, um, I remember being like 16 years old and I found the first church I started going to and fell in love with the Lord. And I remember trying to invite my dad to that church at 16 and, and he wouldn't come. And I wasn't a very good evangelist at the time. I was like, dad, do you want to go to hell or do you want to go to heaven? He's like, what? I was like, never mind. Talk to you later. You know, um, <laughs> 
So I was trying and trying and trying and um, started praying for him. And um, I, I start uh, working at a church for the first time. And I'd given up. I'd given up. I went about 16 years, 17 years. And I was like, man, he's not coming. Didn't even invite my dad to the church I worked at as a youth pastor for the first one. They only lived like 35 minutes away at my first uh, um, church I I worked at. And I remember being 23, 24, my heart just starting to be burdened again for my dad. 20 years. My dad's not going to come. I was preaching that Sunday. I was like, should I invite him? So I remember, you know, telling some gals in our church who are prayer warriors, hey, I'm going to invite my dad. Will you pray? Um, you know, they, they've been, you know, they've been followers of Christ for a long time. And, uh, they're like, we're going to pray for your dad. So I remember inviting my dad and uh, I told him, Hey, I'm preaching this Sunday. You should come. It's like a basketball game. Like you should come to basketball games. You should come to church. Nothing like a basketball game. I was lying to him. I just wanted him to come to church. Okay. And, um, he was like, like a basketball game. I was like, nah, you know, you know, like you're going to see your son, like, you know, do what he loves, you know? And, um, he's like, all right, all right, I'll come to church. And I remember like step one miracle. My dad's coming to church. So he, Ends up coming to church that day, and, um, you know, I'm a young youth pastor. I talked way faster back then than I did today. Yeah, well, why are you laughing? I don't get it. Okay. Anyways, so, um, and then I preached for like 20 minutes, and it was a messy, terrible message. I wasn't close to as good as Joe. Joe, that word today Joe gave today, ooh, it was so good. Pack for where you're going. Come on now. We should have had that and just left. Anyways, okay. Um, so, so I preached 20 minutes of just messiness. I don't remember what I preached. I just remember everything was the greatest message they heard. Not because of the message, because they got out of church so quick and the Seahawks were playing. Um, they're like, great job. Best message ever. I was like, he just liked it because it's 20 minutes long, man. Um, so anyways, um, but at the end, at the end of that 20 minutes of mess, I gave my altar call. A smaller church, church plant, maybe 70 people in the room at the tops. But, you know, I used to give my altar calls this way. Like, if you're on my right, you're left. You want to say yes to Jesus, raise your hand. But like everybody's just like right here. <laughs> but I was like acting like there was like a right, middle, left. It was like one little group, you know. So I was like looking to the right. And, and then, then I, I, I scan the room. My dad's in the middle and he doesn't raise his hand. And I go to the left. I'm like, if you're on my left, you're right. You want to say yes to Jesus, raise your hand. And now during this moment, you need to know something. The ladies who prayed for him to come, they told me, hey, during service, when you do the altar call, we're going to pray for your dad. I was like, okay, you can do that, but just don't touch him because he'll freak out. All right, like, like don't, touch, don't touch a man. It's like, you can reach your hand forward, but like, like how are you going to pray for him? Like, oh, we're going to be in the back, we're going to pray for him. So I go back here and I scan back, second row, sitting about right in this area. Um, I see my dad and he looks up and he raises his hand. And he smiles at me and I go, just to be clear, you are saying yes to Jesus. Like, yeah, you know, he holds his hand up and I pray and uh my my dad, we didn't talk about things of like, you know, like, hey, how you feeling? What? Like, we didn't go there. And so I didn't know what to do after service. Gave him a hug, thank, told him thanks for coming. And then he um, uh, called me the next day and said, hey, Tyler, your mom and I, we had a great time at church. Have a, hold on a second. Michelle, what's it called? Have a blessed day, son. And I was like, <laughs> oh, we got him. He's, he's a disciple basically now. Um, How many of you gave up on something 10 years ago that you need to pick back up? What is it? What's that thing that you prayed for and you put it down and, and God is right now stirring your heart? Trust me, your flesh does not get stirred to pick things back up again. If you feel it right now, I want you to hear this real quick. The Holy Spirit stirring something in your soul, say, pick it back up again. Start praying for this again. 
start believing again. Because here's what it means to put God first in your prayer life. It's saying, I put faith above my feelings. I put faith above my circumstance. God, you go first in this scenario, and I'm going to believe in you and trust in you, and I'm going to pray for it and believe that if I keep praying and I never give up, it may be the right away, it may be 18 months, it may be five years, it may be 50 years, but I'm going to believe and keep praying. Can I just encourage you? Will you pick it up again? Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to finish with uh, receiving communion. So I talked about it being practical, it being critical. And last one, it's beneficial. Oh, it's putting God first is the most beneficial decision. It is the most blessed decision you'll ever make in your life. Now, uh, if I had time, I'd read you Exodus uh, 13, Malachi 3, and also um, uh, Genesis 4. Don't got time for that. So I'm just going to paraphrase. Is that cool? Um, can I get a cumin cup, anybody? You want to toss me one? Thanks, player. And nobody will toss me a communion cup. I'm an athlete. I will catch it. <laughs> Mike T like walked it all the way over. Like, I will catch these. Here, here, toss it to me real quick. I just need to, I need you to believe me. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> just like a basketball game, I told you. Just like a basketball game. Um, <laughs> oh, that's good. That's rich. Um, I'm going to read Exodus 13, a little bit of it. I got to give you some scripture. We'll, we'll, we'll be four minutes late. I got to give you the, the heart of this. Jesus is talking about bringing the first to him in Exodus 13. And if you read the whole thing, it's about uh, basically bringing God the best. And if you bring the clean, best animal, which would be a lamb that's represented, it will redeem the unclean. And he said, if you want things redeemed, you need to learn about sacrifice. You need to learn about order. You need to learn about uh, putting me first and taking the things that you treasure in your heart and giving the best of them to me and seeing what I do with them. And so he says this in Exodus 13. It's, it's, if you just read past it, you really wouldn't understand it. So I want to unpack for you. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set um, apart to the Lord all that open the womb, basically anything that's birthed uh, from the animals. That is every firstborn. He's given order that comes from an animal, which you have. The male shall be the Lord's. Some text says, they're mine. Be every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of the man among your sons you shall uh, redeem. So it's a lot of like uh, the clean redeems the unclean, becomes clean. And it gives two animals. It gives a lamb that is the clean animal. That's the example of a clean animal in the Old Testament. A donkey is the example of an unclean animal. And it's saying if you give your first and best uh, lamb, it will redeem everything that's unclean. And that's a big request from somebody who's a rancher and a farmer saying, you want my best? This is, this is my livelihood. This is, this, is, this is what I'm connected to. I've, I've, I've worked my whole life for this. But he's saying if, if you don't, you lose everything. Everything else. The don- everything else. And, and it's this interesting picture. So the Israelites learn the principle first and putting God first in things. And I started thinking about this message and I started thinking about communion. I was like, I want to do this at the end because I want people to understand something. The Bible tells us that we need to put God first. But the gospel shows us that he put us first, that he gave his first son, that he gave the perfect lamb, the clean lamb for the unclean. And if you don't know you're the unclean, because in that story, we represent the unclean. Hanging around a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, they are bent into sin. They are selfish. Try to take their toy. You're not seeing a righteous person respond well to you, okay? We're all birthed into sin. And really what, what the gospel is, is it's Exodus 13 played out in front of us and God the Father saying, I'm going to give my best. Where your treasure, your heart lies. God didn't need to. He's a God of love. 
And so this cup today, I want you to hear this real quick. The bread represents God's broken body. So you could actually have a whole body. Let me put it this way. The brokenness that you know emotionally, mentally, and physically, Jesus brought that on himself so you could actually have the best mentally, the best emotionally, and the best physically. That's a promise. On this side of heaven or, or on the other side, that's the kingdom of heaven promise. All of us will be made best again, physically, emotionally, and mentally. Can I get amen for that? The best. And then the cup represents Christ's blood that paid the price for us to have the best life and the best eternity. Something you and I cannot purchase, something you and I cannot earn, and it's something that we receive. It is the gospel message. Communion is so important. That's why we take it once a month here. It's a mandate in the Bible that we should receive it as a church, and there should be a frequency to it. And so when you receive the bread and the cup today, I pray that it would, you would receive first the promise that God was willing to give his best, but then you would be compelled to give God back your best. And like I said before, in communion, the Bible shows there must be repentance. So I'm praying that you would repent of some things. But I think we could all agree the thing we need to repent of real quick is whatever is sitting in one needs to move out of that place and Jesus needs to move into one. Amen? May communion be a heart-shifting moment for you where you say, Jesus, you have first place. I repent. I receive the promise of the bread, the promise of the, of the cup that rose in your blood, and God, I receive it. I'm going to live different because of it. And everybody said? Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.